0: Massacred that. Hi, how you doing? I am. It, it, we're starting off low, so it's all uphill from here. So, hi, my name's Eric. I am uh, one of the pastors here at Lighthouse and so grateful that you're here. And if you are joining us right now, uh, kind of jumping in, we are in the beginning stages of a very long journey through the book of Acts. Um, and as we talked about last week, Acts paints a picture of the early church that's radically different from. The culture around it, particularly the Jewish culture that it was birthed out of, very, very different, in fact, from how we often think of church, because the early church was not about a building. They didn't own a building. And in fact, the word that we translate as church in our Bible was actually ecclesia, which is more closely translated community or or, or the congregation of the people, because at the end of the day, it's about being the church, not going to church, and because of that, what we read about in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, is very much about a community of people who are loving one another, not just for an hour or two on a particular day, whether that's Saturday or Sunday, but throughout the week. And it wasn't just in one spot, there was no sacred ground for them it was a bunch of sacred people and wherever they were, that was holy ground. And they they gathered together, they broke bread together, they ate meals in one another's homes. Wherever they could find space to be together, that's where they were at. And they just loved one another. They did life together. They held one another up. They prayed for one another. They they saw miracles happening. They were generous. And I'm not talking about just a little bit of generosity, like, yeah, you know, here's a little uh, lunch money to go get something to eat. They were radically generous. It wasn't just, God, you can have 10%. They're like, God, everything is yours. So show me how you want to use what you've blessed me with. And so when somebody had a need in the community... Oh, hi there. There's the end of the stage. Found it. Um, When somebody had a need in the community they would band together to raise the funds to address that. And if they didn't have enough funds, somebody would go and sell something, whether it was property or possessions, in order to supply the finances or the resources to care for one another's needs. And there's no wonder when you are in a community like that that says it's not about a place, it's about a people who have been transformed and who are genuinely loving one another. It's no wonder that God continued to add to their number daily, those who were being you know, brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And when people saw this, they were so dang attracted by it, they grabbed hold of it and just went, I don't want to let go. And so the early church began to snowball. Um, and we are going to look at the after, what happens after the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell. We're going to look at that in a moment. But before we dive into chapter 3, there is a really important assumption that the early church is making that if we don't understand it, we're going to read the rest of the book of Acts and, and we could come to the erroneous conclusion that what God is doing there was a one-time thing because he somehow wanted to establish his church and after that he doesn't need to move anymore. But, but there's an assumption that undergirds everything they're doing. So before we turn to Acts chapter 3, let's go back to Acts chapter 1 and to the very first verse which gives us a clue about an assumption that these early believers are making. In Acts chapter 1, Luke writes... In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Let's pause right there. This is one of those verses that could be seen as just kind of his introduction verse, kind of a throwaway verse, but it's super important because what it suggests is that that what is going to happen in the book of Acts is not just the efforts of a group of disciples who have been inspired by their rabbi, but then he died and he left, and now they're trying to pick up the pieces and trying to, to kind of follow in his footsteps and try to do what, the, what, what he had done. What Luke is suggesting is that what happens in the book of Acts is actually a continuation of Jesus' ministry, that he is ministering now through these men and women who have tasted and seen that he is good, who have given him their lives, who have basically said, your will be done because I am a member of your kingdom. You're my king, my Lord. I choose to follow you. You didn't just save me. You own me. I want to do what you want to do. So have your way with me. And then as God breathes his Holy Spirit into those disciples... The same spirit that empowered Jesus through his public ministry empowers them. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead breathes new life into them. So the, the mindset that they have, the assumption that they are making, is that everything they do is actually not them doing it. It's Christ in them that is doing it. I'm not my own. I've been bought at a price. Therefore, you know, God, I am yours. Have your way with me. I love the way that um, in Ezekiel, can we throw throw the the Ezekiel passage up there for a moment? This is a prophecy that the prophet Ezekiel wrote hundreds and hundreds of years prior to the day of Pentecost, but it was a promise that was fulfilled on Pentecost. God said, I will give you a new heart and I will put my spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will fill you with my spirit. That prophecy was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when God literally did a heart transplant. He took their hearts of stone. Remember, even these disciples, even though they'd walked with Jesus still didn't understand, even after he'd been raised from the dead, still didn't understand that Jesus didn't come to throw off the yoke of Rome and establish Israel as the preeminent nation in the world. They were still empire building. And they were still thinking in lines of, you know, the closer I am to you, Jesus, you know, the more important I am. And Jesus is like, you don't get it. And so as those hearts of stone are replaced with a heart of flesh that that is more sensitive to the Spirit's lead. And as God pours His Spirit into them, radical things happen. I just want to think for just a moment about what that means, having your heart transplanted. When you get a transplant, your life radically changes. When you get bone marrow transplant, your body adapts to having somebody else's blood flowing through your veins. If you were to go and get a retinal transplant, You would literally go through life viewing the world through somebody else's eyes. When you get a heart transplant, you begin to do life to the beat of another's heart. And that's what happened on the day of Pentecost to those disciples. God placed His heart in them. And they began to go through their life to the cadence of his heartbeat. He placed his spirit in them so that what they did was done through his power and enablement. So they could not take credit for it. It was all him. And we're going to see that they're going to begin to point back and go, everything, everything is because of Jesus. It's not about us. Don't look at us. We have to decrease. He needs to increase. That's the assumption that they're making. So with that introduction, let's go ahead and now turn to Acts chapter 3. And we'll begin reading in verse 1. This is coming right on the heels of the description of the early church, right after Pentecost. And now we read that one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. So there were three like public times of worship. 3, 3 p.m. just happened to be the latest one. They were going to the temple courts, like they probably did every other day, to go and pray. Now There was a man who was lame from birth, being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. And when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I don't have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Let's just think for a moment about what this this man who was crippled since birth, we'll find out later he was 40 years old, so for four decades this man has not had the ability to walk. And every day somebody in his family picks him up, carries him or, or, or pushes him maybe in a wheelbarrow or something, brings him to this gate just outside the temple and lays him there on a mat where he puts his beaten up little cup out there And he begins to beg. And every single day, men and women who are coursing into the temple gates to worship pass by this guy. And he probably says the same thing to every single one. I don't know what it is. is—alms for the poor. Help a brother out. You know in Yahweh's name, you know, whatever. I don't have any idea what he says, but he probably had his regular shtick and it had to be brief because you know people are ignoring him. People are walking past him. He is nothing but another beggar in a city full of beggars. And they're just trying to get to worship. And I can't imagine how how numbing this must have been, how much this must have ripped away and deadened his identity as a human being. Because he has begun to identify himself by his ailment. I'm a cripple, and he's reminded of it every day. Not only is his livelihood based upon what he presents to the world, so the more decrepit he looks the more compassion he might elicit. But every day he sits just outside the gate, but he doesn't enter in. This is as close as he gets to worship. Because according to the Levitical laws, he's not even clean enough to be welcomed into those courts. He can't worship there. And so this is as close as he gets, and he's reminded, I'm not a human. I'm a cripple. And so he's stopped even making eye contact with the very people that walk by him. For him, they're not even people anymore. All he sees are pockets and wallets walking by. And he, it's a numbers game. Just ask. Just ask. Say the same thing over and over, and hopefully somebody will walk by and drop a coin in as they continue to walk, never even breaking stride, because they don't see a person when they walk by. They see an eyesore, they see a cripple, and, and he, they're, he, they're, he's just hoping that somebody will have enough, I don't even know if you'd call it compassion, that somebody would feel guilty enough about their blessings that they might just drop a coin in to assuage their own, you know, feelings, but it really isn't anything to do with him. And this is the man's existence day after day after day. He has become his ailment. So it's just another ordinary day in the life of this man who views himself as a cripple. And then Peter and John walk up. And they do something really unexpected. They stop. And they actually look at this man. And Peter has to go so far as to call this man to look at him. And I wonder, why did Peter and John stop? First off, remember, these are no ordinary men. These are men who have had a heart transplant. Their hearts of stone have been replaced with hearts of flesh. They've had an eye transplant. And we look at this man, they don't see him as everybody else does, as an eyesore, as an, as an obstacle to getting into the temple courts. They see him as a son of God, created in his image, and endowed with a value that his current state you know, has no bearing on whatsoever. This is, they don't see him as a cripple. They see him as a child of God. And so they stop. And they look right at him. And then Peter says, hey, look at me. And the man looks up. Because he thinks if he does, okay, this guy's inviting me, this guy stopped, that's kind of crazy. But now this man is is looking at me and inviting me to look at him, okay. Are you going to give me something? And then Peter says, hey, I don't have any money. Right? Left my wallet at home, but... But I but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And then he reaches down. Peter not only has the eyes of Christ to see this man, he not only has the, the heart of Christ, but he also now allows God to use his hands to reach down and pull this man up. And the guy stands up for the first time in 40 years. By his own strength. And he, and he begins to stand there. And as he realizes that he can stand. He then takes his first step. And then another one. And all of a sudden his heart is radically changed. Because the, not only is his body changing. But the chains of his ailments fall away. The chains of despair that this is who I am. is my ailment begin to fall away. And he finds freedom. And he begins to skip as his heart is buoyed by the joy of the ability to move around by his own strength. Let me just pause here for a second before we keep going on in the story. Because there's something that just bugs me as somebody who wants to be able to understand and explain everything. This shouldn't have happened. This doesn't make any sense. And, And push aside the fact that it's a miracle and God can do anything. Think about the man and his condition. He's 40 years old, and for 40 years he has never taken a step by his own strength. He was born crippled, which means that not only do his leg muscles not know have the strength to hold him up, but his bones have never held his weight before, and now all of a sudden they're able to, and not only that, but his brain has never had to take those impulses to try to figure out how to balance, right? His inner ear stuff has never had to to help him find his his center mass. Have you ever watched an infant learning to walk? It's not something that happened instantaneously. There's lots of stumbling and falling. This man should not have been able to walk. Even if God miraculously healed his body mentally, this shouldn't have been able to happen. And yet Peter is a man who is willing to be used by God, not only because he has his heart and his eyes, but he's willing to be his hands to say, I have faith to know that God can do the impossible. Because what is impossible to man is not impossible to God. And what was an ordinary day for this man became an extraordinary day because God intersected his life. We have a God who's able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. And so this man is given the ability to walk, his body becomes strong, even mentally God begins to heal and and, and supernaturally give him the ability to hold himself up and begins to heal some of the years of, of numbing and callousness that has begun in him because he has not viewed himself as a child of God, he's viewed himself as a cripple, let's keep going. This man jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts for the very first time. He begins to walk into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Could you imagine? Of course. I can walk. God, be praised. And he's joyous because the joy that has replaced his despair, the joy that has replaced his numbness, that this is just... This is just my life. This is my lot in life. It's overwhelming, and he can't contain himself, which of course begins to draw a crowd because why wouldn't it? Everybody else is just going to church, and you know you have to be serious when you go to church. You can't pick on other people's baseball teams, apparently, when you go to church. That's frowned upon, or they'll cut you off. Right? You can't smile. We're going to church. You got to be serious. And this man is not serious. I know, Darlene, not you. You get it. <laughs> Preaching to the choir there. But this man is overwhelmed with joy and it draws a crowd because why is this guy acting this way? And so people begin to gather around them. And then they realize who? Isn't that that guy that normally sits out of the gate? What's going on? And so more and more people begin to congregate they recognized it as the man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Verse 11. While the man held on to Peter, which makes sense, right? He's still kind of learning. Find his equilibrium. As the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Let's pause again. That might be a little detail, the fact that this takes place in a place called Solomon's Colonnade, probably a detail that most of us would just skip over. I know I have a lot. But this isn't the first time we've heard about Solomon's Colonnade. In fact, if you go back to John chapter 10, Jesus happened to have an an interaction in the temple courts in this precise spot. And in Solomon's Colonnade, Jesus uttered these words, I and the Father are one, And a crowd who was gathered around him on that particular day didn't take kindly to those words because he was basically saying, I'm God. And they felt that was blasphemous, so they picked up stones with the intent to stone Jesus to death, which is repetitive because that's what happens when you stone somebody is they die, right? That's what happened before, several months earlier. A crowd almost killed Jesus. And now here's Peter and John with a guy holding onto his arm, surrounded by a crowd, and I bet there were people in that crowd that were also there that day that picked up stones to stone Jesus, and they're in that same crowd surrounding Peter and John and this man who was formerly crippled. I bet there were people in that crowd who had been in the praetorium, yelling to Pontius Pilate, crucify him, who are now in this crowd, seeing this man walking for the first time and praising God, and they're looking at Peter and John going, what's going on? And in this moment, Peter and John have a choice. They can unhitch themselves from this man's arm and kind of blend into the rest of the crowd and go back to their regularly scheduled prayer time, which is why they had come originally to the temple courts. Or they could use the opportunity presented to them by the miracle to share the gospel with these men and women who are surrounding them. That's dangerous. Because what happens if these people decide that they don't like what Peter and John have to say and they pick up stones to stone them? And in this moment, Peter makes a decision that he's not only had a heart transplant and and he is marching to the beat of another's heartbeat. He's not only had an eye transplant so that he sees the world through Christ's eyes. He's not only said, Jesus, you can use me as your hands to reach out to those that others would consider untouchable. He is literally saying to Jesus, in this moment, you can have it all, Lord, every part of my world. So take this life and breathe on this heart that is now yours, that now beats to the cadence of your heartbeat. Because Peter decides to take the bolder move and to lean in and use this opportunity to share the gospel again. And just like he did the last time out in the streets of Jerusalem, he is bold in what he says. Let's go ahead and read it. In verse 12. When Peter saw the people, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does it surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses, he points to John and himself, we're witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. That is not the words of a man who is trying to preserve his own life. In a place where people have already shown themselves willing to throw stones at somebody who says something they don't agree with. These are bold words. And and notice that Peter is very clear that everything that has been done has been done in the name of Jesus. Now let me clarify. He is not suggesting that Jesus' name is a magical incantation by which you can make anything happen. I want that door to open in Jesus' name, right? I guess God could, but that's not what he's saying. What he is saying is do not look at me as if I have somehow done this by my own strength. This has all been done by the authority and power of Jesus Christ, and it has all been done to his glory. Because it's not about me, it's about him. We need to decrease. He is the focus. So it's in Jesus' name. And why are you surprised? And I love those words. I love that he starts, why are you surprised that this happened? Um, Because we know this guy. And we know he can't walk and he's 40 years old. And he's never stepped a day in his life. That's why we're surprised. But remember, Peter and John have been radically impacted by their, their proximity to Jesus. Their heart has been changed. Their eyes have been changed. The Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, is now in them and using them to raise this man back onto his feet. So why are you surprised? And I have to ask myself the same question. Why am I surprised when we pray for something and God actually does it? Why am I surprised when a couple of months ago, Tammy Moran says, I, I, right after church, I'm beginning to feel about a vertigo starting. And I know that this lasts two to three days. And this one's coming on and I can feel that it's hard. Why am I surprised when we, we surround her and we pray over her and an hour later she calls and said, it's gone. The vertigo is left. Why am I surprised by that? Why am I surprised when, when Heather, who's got a chronic shoulder issue, mentions it in her life group, my shoulder's been really hurting me l- lately. I, I hurt it in karate, and so we pray over her. And all of a sudden, the next week, she goes, yeah, that night, there was no more pain. Why am I surprised by that? Why am I surprised when Bill Nelson, who goes around with a hole in his side for nine months, and it won't close so much so that the doctors say, we're going to have to put a little vacuum hose in there, and he walks around with his vacuum hose for weeks and nothing changes. And on Friday, he goes to his doctor. And the doctor goes, I'm really sorry. We just have to keep waiting. And then on Sunday, we lay hands on him and pray over him. And the next day, not the next month, the next day, he goes to his doctor. and The doctor goes, what happened? I just saw you Friday. What happened? Um, well, my, my church prayed over me. Uh, hold on a second. Your church prayed over you. I can't even put the hose back into the hole. And I just took the hose out of the hole. What happened? My church prayed. Why should that surprise us if the God that spoke the universe into existence, the God that made you and I, actually answers our prayers? It shouldn't. And I'll I'll be the first to say that it still does. I'm still surprised when God moves. And I wish that wasn't the case, but quite honestly, sometimes I just don't... I don't expect God to do it. Even when I fall down on a skateboard, which I should never step on again, admittedly, I fall down on a skateboard and blow my elbow out. My first thought is not, God, would you please do whatever you want to glorify yourself in this, but would you please heal it if you're willing? That's not my first thought. My first thought is to go get some ice and take an aspirin and then ignore my wife's demands to go to the doctor. That's, that's just how I've been designed, right? Those are my first thoughts. And yet, I've got to admit, God still moves, and he still moves powerfully. I have an opportunity to interact with a ton of pastors, um, and some of them, some of the pastors that I interact with in other parts of the world tell me stories that honestly sound ridiculous to me. They tell me stories of people who have leprosy, who are radically healed. They tell me stories of people who are blind, who receive their eyesight back from prayer alone. They tell me stories of limbs growing back. They tell me stories of people who are crippled, just like this man was, and all of a sudden are able to walk because of prayer. I've got one friend who, who has been a missionary in Cambodia. He told me this story the first time, and I thought he was lying, and then I really got to know this man, and I realized he was not lying. He told me a story of, he, he would take his motorcycle and a backpack full of, of medical supplies, and he would go to these really remote villages in Cambodia. And he would go there initially to care for people medically so that he could then share the gospel with them. And he went to this one remote village, and a woman came up to him as he was ministering to people. A woman came up to him with a bundle that looked like she was carrying her baby. And she hands it to him and asks him to pray. And he pulls the sheet back over the baby, and he thinks to himself, this baby is dead. She knows that, right? The child's skin was gray and cold, the child's eyes no, couldn't even, weren't even fully closed and he could see that they were glassy. Uh, he said at one point like a fly landed on the child's face and it didn't even twitch. This child was dead. He's like, she, she wants me to pray. It's not like he's going to say no. So he prays for the child. Mainly he prays for the mom who was very obviously in denial. And then he wraps the baby up and hands it back to her and kind of goes back to his, his day. The next morning, this woman... Is screaming as she's running through the streets towards him. And he's like, oh, she's not about to come and and blame me. Right? And the woman comes up and thrusts the same bundle back into his hands. And he takes it and he pulls the sheet back. And there is the same child he prayed for the day before, but it is very much alive with its cheeks are, 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 are flush again. And its eyes are blinking and it's breathing. And he's like, Wow, you know, kind of how would you feel if all of a sudden you're like, God just raised a child from the dead? And that day, you better believe that there were people in that village who were interested in hearing the gospel message. You better believe it, right? And I hear stories like that and I go, why don't I see miracles like that? Why isn't God moving here in Costa Mesa like he's moving around the world? And if I'm honest, I'd have to say at least part of the answer is because we don't think we need him to. Because when when things happen in our own lives, the first thing we turn to is not God. The first thing we turn to is a doctor or is to an insurance policy or is to our bank account or is to our own skills and talents and abilities or is to just time. I'm just going to let time heal this thing, you know? That's our natural tendency. We have not because we ask not. And at the end of the day, we're really not all in our minds. We're really not all that dependent upon God to move. And it, it makes me think of a story that transpired between a, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Thomas Aquinas. A guy named Thomas Aquinas and Pope Innocent II at the time. And Thomas was kind of a a church father, and he was invited to the Vatican, and the Pope is giving him a tour through the Vatican. And and he's showing him all the different things, and he brings him to the treasury. And as they're walking through the treasury with tables heaped, with bags of coins that were the the offerings and whatnot, and there's people counting them. the Pope looks at Thomas with kind of a smile on his face, and he says, surely the church can no longer say, silver and gold I have not. And Thomas goes, true. But neither can she say, arise and walk. I think a lot of times the reason we don't see God moving is because we're really not in our minds all that dependent upon him. We're dependent upon our stuff. We're dependent upon our strength. We're dependent upon our own wisdom. We're dependent upon a political party. Or we're dependent upon another person that we look to and say, you've got to solve this. Or we're dependent upon insurance and all these other things. We are dependent upon our own strength. And then we wonder why when we do everything we can and we accomplish what we are able to accomplish, we wonder why that's the extent of it. And the truth be told, if we rely upon our own strength, then we will only see what we are able to do. But if we genuinely say, God, here I am, help yourself to my life. Give me a heart transplant so that my heart beats to the cadence of your heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the eyes to see my circumstances and the people around me the way you see them. Here are my hands. They're now yours. Use them as you see fit. You can have it all. Every moment, I I, I lay down the idol of my image preservation where I'm trying to constantly massage how people perceive me on social media and my interactions with people. And I want everybody to like me. Therefore, I'm never going to say something that will piss them off. And then I'm going to think I need to apologize for saying piss them off in church, right? (laughs) Or whatever. All of these things we do. But God, I lay that down. You can have it all. I'm willing to look like a fool for you. I'm willing to step out in faith for you. Even if you don't choose to heal the person, I am willing to move towards them and pray for them. Darlene, I want to affirm you for last week. Because as we were up here and you came up and said, no, 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 that girl does not get off the stage until we pray over her. I'm grateful that you responded to the Spirit. And I'm so grateful that after that, I turn around here and here's Tanner Erickson standing over on the side, and there's a group of people praying over him because he has nodes on his vocal cords. And I cannot wait to hear what God does in Joanna's life. I have faith that God can heal her one way or the other if He is willing, and I pray that He has already. And I have faith that God can remove the nodes off of Tanner Erickson's vocal cords, if he so chooses. And I am so grateful that there was a group of people that were responsive to that. Guys, we are invited to be God's hands and feet. But it requires stepping out in faith that God can do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. And so we're just going gonna to go ahead and sing a song of submission right now. It's a song of saying, God, here I am, help yourself to me. And I just want this song to wash over you. And if it is the cry of your heart, you go ahead and sing it. And in a few moments, I'm going to invite us, as this song kind of comes to an end, I'm going to invite us to stand up and say, God, here we are and present ourselves. But let's just prepare our hearts. And let's really sit before him and say, do you, are you willing to let God help himself to your life? Are you willing to say, here I am, help yourself Everything I have is yours.